Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 4 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Joanna of Navarre, Chapter 1, Part 2. High feasts and rejoicing celebrated the reconciliation of the Duke of Bretagne with the King of France, and the treaty for the marriage between their children. On this occasion, the choleric Duke condescended, at the table of the King of France, to dine in company with his rival, John of Bretagne. But not even there would he meet Sir Oliver Clisson. So true it is that the aggressor is more difficult to conciliate than the injured party. This vindictive spirit on the part of the Duke next betrayed him into the dishonorable proceeding of extending his protection to Sir Peter Crayon after a base attempt to assassinate the constable in the place de St. Catherine. The King of France was much exasperated when he heard that Crayon was sheltered by the Duke of Bretagne, and wrote a peremptory demand for him to be given up to justice. The royal messengers found the Duke at his castle of Ermine with his duchess, and were civilly entertained. The Duke positively denied any knowledge of Crayon, but the King, being persuaded to the contrary, once more prepared to invade the duchy, with the avowed intention of deposing John the Valiant, and making himself the guardian of the young heir of Bretagne, Joanna's eldest son. The duke was preserved from the ruin that threatened him, by the alarming access of frenzy with which the king was seized, in the scorching plains of Mons. Meantime, Sir Oliver Clisson raised a civil war in Bretagne, which greatly harassed the court. The duke lost all of his ill-acquired gains, was forced to shut himself up in Vons, with the duchess and their children, without venturing beyond the walls, as the warfare was of the most murderous nature, and quarter was given by neither party. Clisson had greatly the advantage in the contest, and, besides being important successes not necessary to record here, he twice captured all the gold and silver plate belonging to the duke and duchess, and many of their jewels and other precious effects, which enabled him to carry on the war against them. And, though the duke was the sovereign of the country, there was not a Breton knight or squire who would bear arms against Clisson. At length, Joanna, who was, in her quiet way, a much sounder politician than her lord, contrived to establish a sort of amicable understanding with some of the Breton nobles in the interest of Clisson. The Viscount Rohan, her agent in this negotiation, was, at the same time, the son of her aunt, Jane of Navarre, and Clisson's son-in-law. The Duke of Bretagne had, at length, become aware of the difficulties that surrounded him. He felt that he was growing old, and that his children were very young, 
and, excepting the Duke and Duchess of Burgundy, there was not a friend in the world who would take care of his wife and her infants. As to the branch of Navarre from which the Duchess sprang, the wicked acts of her father had made that family remarkably unpopular in France. Therefore, he feared that if the hatred of Sir Oliver de Clisson and the Count of Penthevres continued to be united against his house, his children and their mother would, in case of his decease, be left with many enemies. Having pondered these things in his mind, the duke, without asking advice from his counsel, called the secretary, to whom, on entering his chamber, he gave a large sheet of paper and said, Write down what I shall dictate. The secretary having made himself ready, the duke repeated every word that he was to write, and the letter was indicted in the most friendly terms to Clisson, desiring him to devise some means for them to meet, when everything should be settled most amicably. The letter was folded up in the presence alone of the duke and his secretary, and the duke, having sealed it with his own signet, called his most trusty varlet into the apartment, saying, Hasten to the castle of Jocelyn, and saying boldly that I have sent thee to speak to my cousin, Sir Oliver, the Lord of Clisson. Thou wilt be introduced to him. Salute him from me. If he return the salute, give him this letter, and bring me back his answer. But on thy life, tell no man. On the arrival of the varlet at Castle Jocelyn, the Lord de Clisson examined the private signet of the duke, which he knew well, opened the letter, and read it two or three times over, and was much astonished at the friendly and affectionate terms in which it was compounded. After musing some time, he told the varlet he would consider his answer, and ordered him to be conducted to an apartment by himself. The attendants of the Lord of Clisson were amazed at what they saw and heard, for never before had anyone come from the Duke of Bretagne without being mured in the deepest dungeon. Clisson wrote, in return, that if the duke wished to see him, he must send his son as a pledge, who would be taken the greatest care of till his return. This letter was sealed and given to the varlet, who hastened back to the duke at Vons. On receiving the letter from the lord of Clisson, he paused after reading it, then exclaimed, I will do it, for, since I mean to treat amicably with him, every cause of distrust must be removed. He then said to the Viscount Rohan, Viscount, you and the Lord de Montbocher shall carry my little son to the Chateau Jocelyn, and bring back with you the Lord de Clisson, for I am determined to make up our quarrel. Some days, however, elapsed before the Duchess could resolve to part with her boy. At length, her earnest desire of composing the strife overcame her maternal fears, and she permitted her kinsman, Rohan, to conduct the princely child to Castle Jocelyn. When Clisson saw the boy, and perceived the confidence the duke had placed in him, he was much affected. The result was, that he and the duke's envoy set out together from Castle Jocelyn, carrying the boy with them, for Sir Oliver said, he would give him back to his parents, as henceforth he should never distrust the duke, after the trial he had made of him. Such generosity was shown on both sides, that it was no wonder a firm peace was the consequence. Sir Oliver dismounted at the convent of Dominicans, the place where the interview was appointed to take place. When the Duke of Bretagne found that Sir Oliver had brought back his son, 
he was highly delighted with his generosity and courtesy, and, hastening to the convent, shut himself up in a chamber with Sir Oliver. Here they conversed some time. Then they went privately down the garden, and entered a small boat that conveyed them to an empty ship anchored in the river, and, when at a distance from their people, they conferred for a long time. Their friends thought all the time they were conversing in the convent chamber. When they had arranged all matters thus secretly, they called their boatmen, who rowed them to the church of the Dominicans, where they entered by a private door through the garden and cloisters, the duke holding Sir Oliver by the hand all the time. All who saw them thus were well pleased. Indeed, the whole of Bretagne was made very happy when this peace was made public. But, owing to the extreme precautions of the duke, no one knew what passed during the conference on the river. Such is the very interesting account given by Froissart of the reconciliation of these two deadly enemies. The Breton chroniclers attribute the pacification wholly to the influence of Joanna, an application having been made to her by Viscount Rohan, the husband of her aunt, praying her good offices in mediating a peace between her lord and the rebel peers of Bretagne. In compliance with this request, she prevailed on the duke to raise the siege of Jocelyn, and make those concessions to Clisson which produced the happy result of putting an end to the civil war. Clisson agreed to pay ten thousand francs of gold to the duke, and, with the rest of the Breton barons, associated the Duchess of Bretagne in the solemn oaths of homage, which they renewed to their sovereign on the 28th of December, 1393, at Nantes. In the same year, proposals of marriage were made by Joanna's future husband, Henry of Lancaster, Earl of Derby, to her niece, the young princess of Navarre, but the negotiation came to nothing. The following year, Marie of Bretagne, Joanna's eldest daughter, was contracted to the eldest son of this prince, afterwards Henry V. The Duke of Bretagne engaged to give Marie 150,000 francs in gold for her portion. The castle of Brest, though at that time in the possession of the English, was, at the especial desire of the Duchess Joanna, appointed for the solemnization of the nuptials, and the residence of the youthful pair. But after the cessation of this important town had been guaranteed by Richard II, the King of France contrived to break the marriage by inducing the heir of Alençon to offer to marry the princess, with a smaller dower than the heir of Lancaster was to have received with her. Marie was espoused to John of Alençon, June 26, 1396, and a peculiar animosity always subsisted between her husband and the defrauded Henry of Monmouth. The heir of Bretagne was married to Joanna of France the same year. Previously to this ceremony, the young bridegroom received the sacrament of confirmation from Henry, Bishop of Vannes, and, according to the wish of her father, exchanged the name of Peter for that of John. The espousals were solemnized at the Hotel de Saint-Paul, by the Archbishop of Rouen, in the presence of the King and Queen of France, the Queen of Sicily, the Duke and Duchess of Bretagne, and the Dukes of Berry and Burgundy, Joanna's uncles. The Duke of Bretagne undertook a voyage to England, in 1398, to induce King Richard to restore him to the Earldom of Richmond, which had been granted by Richard II to his first Queen, Anna Bohemia, and, after her death, to Jane of Bretagne, the sister of the Duke, 
who was married to Raoul Basset, an English knight. Richard II restored the earldom to the duke, and gave him an acquittance of all his debts to him, and the duke did the same by him at Windsor, 23rd of April, 1398. It was time, says Dom Maurice, with some naivete, that these princes should settle their accounts together, for the one was on the point of deposition, the other of death. It was in the following year that Joanna first became acquainted with her second husband, Henry of Bolingbroke, during the period of his banishment from his native land. Henry was not only one of the most accomplished warriors and statesmen of the age in which he lived, but remarkable for his fine person and graceful manners. The vindictive jealousy of his cousin, Richard II of England, had pursued him to the court of France, and exerted itself successfully to break the matrimonial engagements, into which he was about to enter, with the Lady Marie of Berry, the daughter of Charles VI's uncle. This princess was cousin German to Joanna, and in all probability was the object of Henry's affection, if we may form conclusions, from the bitterness with which he ever appears to have recurred to Richard's arbitrary interference, for the prevention of this marriage. Charles the Sixth of France, though he entertained a personal friendship for Henry, whom he regarded as an ill-treated man, had reluctantly requested him to withdraw from his court, as his residence there was displeasing to Richard the Second. Henry then turned his steps towards Bretagne, but, aware of the intimate connection which subsisted between the Duke and Richard, he paused at the castle of Blois, and sent one of the knights of his train forward, to announce his approach, to the court of Vannes, and to ascertain the nature of the reception the Duke might be disposed to give him. John the Valiant, according to Froissart, was piqued at the mistrust implied by this proceeding on the part of Henry, for, says that historian, he was much attached to him, having always loved the Duke of Lancaster, his father, better than the other sons of Edward the Third. Why, said he to the knight, has our nephew stopped on the road? It is foolish, for there is no knight whom I would so gladly see in Bretagne as my fair nephew, the Earl of Derby. Let him come and find a hearty welcome. When the Earl of Derby received this message, he immediately set forward for the dominions of the Duke of Bretagne. The Duke of Bretagne met the Earl at Nantes, and received him and his company with great joy. It was on this occasion that Henry first saw, and, if the chronicles of Bretagne may be relied on, conceived that esteem for the Duchess Joanna, which afterwards induced him to become a suitor for her hand. We find he was accustomed to call the Duke of Bretagne, his good uncle, in memory of his first marriage with Mary of England, and it is very probable that, in accordance with the manners of those times, he addressed the Duchess Joanna, in courtesy, by the title of aunt. The Archbishop of Canterbury accompanied Henry to the court of Bretagne incognito, having just arrived from England with an invitation to him from the Londoners and some of the nobles attached to his party, urging him to invade England for the ostensible purpose of claiming his inheritance, the Duchy of Lancaster. Henry repeated this in confidence to the Duke of Bretagne, and requested his advice. Fair nephew, replied the Duke, the straightest road is the surest and the best. You are in a perplexing situation, and ask advice. I would have you trust the Londoners. 
They are powerful, and will compel King Richard, who, I understand, has treated you unjustly, to do as they please. I will assist you with vessels, men-at-arms, and crossbows. You shall be conveyed to the shores of England in my ships, and my people shall defend you from any perils you may encounter on the voyage. Whether Henry was indebted to the good offices of the Duchess Joanna for this favorable reply from the Duke, history has not recorded. But, as John the Valiant had hitherto been the fast friend, and, as far as his disaffected nobles would permit, the faithful ally of his royal brother-in-law, Richard II, and now that his suzerain, Charles VI of France, was united in the closest bonds of amity with that prince, and the young heir of Bretagne was espoused to the sister of his queen, it must have been some very powerful influence, scarcely less indeed than the eloquence of a bosom counsellor, that could have induced him to furnish Richard's mortal foe with the means of invading England. The purveyances of aspiring Lancaster were, however, prepared at Vannes, and the Duke of Bretagne came thither with his guest, when all things were ready for his departure. Henry was conveyed by three of the Duke's vessels of war, freighted with men-at-arms and crossbows, this royal adventurer, the banished Lancaster, appears to have been the person who gave to the Myosotis Arvensis, or forget-me-not, its emblematic and poetic meaning, by uniting it, at the period of his exile, on his collar of S.S., with the initial letter of his mot, or watchword, Souvenez-vous de moi, thus rendering it the symbol of remembrance, and, like the subsequent fatal roses of York, Lancaster and Stuart, the lily of Bourbon, and the violet of Napoleon, an historical flower. Poets and lovers have adopted the sediment, which makes the blue myosotis plead the cause of the absent, by the eloquence of its popular name, forget-me-not. Few indeed of those who, at parting, exchange this simple touching appeal to memory, are aware of the fact that it was first used as such by a royal Plantagenet prince, who was, perhaps, indebted to the agency of this mystic blossom for the crown of England. We know not if Henry of Lancaster presented a myosotis to the Duchess of Bretagne at his departure from the court of Vannes, but he afforded a convincing proof that his fair hostess was not forgotten by him, when a proper season arrived for claiming her remembrance. The assistance rendered by the Duke of Bretagne to the future husband of his consort was not the last important action of his life. He was at that time in declining health, and had once more involved himself in disputes with Clisson and his party. Clisson's daughter, Margaret, Countess of Pont-Fevres, being a woman of an ambitious and daring spirit, was perpetually urging her husband and father to set up the rival title of the House of Blois to the Duchy of Bretagne, and is accused by Alan Bouchard, and other of the Breton chroniclers, of having hastened the death of John the Valiant, by poison or sorcery. The Duke was carefully attended by Joanna in his dying illness. By a codicil to his last will and testament, which he had made during his late visit to England, he confirms her dower and all his former gifts, to his beloved companion, the Duchess Joanna, whom, with his eldest son John, Count de Montfort, the Bishop of Nantes, and his cousin, the Lord Montauban, he nominates his executors. The document concludes with these words. In the absence of others, and in the presence of our said companion the Duchess, 
This codicil is signed 26th day of October, 1399, dictated by our said Lord the Duke from his sickbed, and given under his seal in the castle tower near Nantes, about the hour of Vespers, in the presence of the Duchess, Guile a knight, Master Robert Brocherol, and Joanna Chestnall, wife of Guidon de Rupefort, written by J. de Ripa, notary, at the castle at Nantes. On the 1st of November, 1399, the Duke breathed his last, and Joanna having been appointed by him as regent for their eldest son, the young Duke, with the entire care of his person, assumed the reins of government in his name. Her first public act, after the funeral of her deceased lord, had been solemnized in the cathedral church of Nantes, was a public reconciliation with Sir Oliver Clisson, with his son-in-law, Count de Penthefres, and the rest of the disaffected nobles, who had been at open variance with her deceased lord. She employed the prelates, and some of the most prudent of the nobles of Bretagne, to mediate this pacification, and, after many journeys and much negotiation, concessions were made on both sides, and Clisson, with the rest of the malcontents, swore to obey the widow duchess, during the minority of their young duke, her son. This treaty was signed and sealed at the castle of Blen, January 1, 1400. Clisson's power in the duchy was so great, owing to his vast possessions there, his great popularity, and his influence as constable of France, that he might have been a most formidable enemy to the young duke, if the duchess regent had not taken such laudable pains to conciliate him. When Joanna had exercised the sovereign authority as regent for her son a year and a half, the young duke, accompanied by her, made his solemn entrance into Rennes, March 22, 1401, and took the oaths in the presence of his prelates and nobles, having entered his twelfth year. He then proceeded to the cathedral, and, according to the custom of the dukes, his predecessors, passed the night in prayer before the great altar of St. Peter. On the morrow, having heard mass, he was knighted by Clisson, and then conferred knighthood on his younger brothers, Arthur and Jules, after which he was invested with the ducal habit, circlet and sword, by his prelates and nobles, and carried in procession through the city. When the ecclesiastical ceremony was ended, the young duke mounted his horse, and, attended by his nobles, returned to the castle of Rennes, where a royal banquet had been prepared under the auspices of the duchess regent. Joanna put her son in possession of the duchy at so tender an age, as a preliminary to her union with Henry the Fourth, who had been in a great measure indebted to the good offices of her late lord for his elevation to the throne of England. Henry had been for some years a widower. His first wife was Mary de Bohun, the co-heiress of the Earl of Hereford, Lord Constable of England. Joanna, to whom the proposal of a union with this prince appears to have been peculiarly agreeable, being aware that a serious obstacle existed on the important subject of religion, kept the affair a profound secret, till she could obtain from the Pope of Avignon a general dispensation to marry any one whom she pleased, within the fourth degree of consanguinity, without naming the person. Henry, who had been educated in Wiglifit principles, being at that time attached to the party of Boniface, the Pope of Rome, or the Antipope, as he was styled by those who denied his authority. 
Joanna's agents negotiated this difficult arrangement so adroitly that the bull was executed, according to her desire, March 20th, 1402, without the slightest suspicion being entertained by the orthodox court of Avignon that the schismatic king of England was the mysterious person, within the forbidden degrees of consanguinity, whom Benedict had so obligingly granted, the Duchess Dowager of Bretagne, liberty to espouse. When Joanna had thus outwitted her pope, she dispatched a trusty squire of her household, named Antoine Rixi, to conclude her treaty of marriage with King Henry. After the articles of this matrimonial alliance were signed, Joanna and her royal bridegroom were espoused, by procuration, at the palace of Eltham, on the third day of April, 1402. Antoine Rixi, acting as the proxy of the bride. What motive could have induced the lovely widow of John the Valiant of Bretagne to choose a male representative on this interesting occasion? It is difficult to say, but it is certain that Henry promised to take his august fiancée to wife, in the person of the said Antoine Rixi, to whom he plighted his nuptial troth, and on his finger he placed the bridal ring. This act was performed with great solemnity in the presence of the Archbishop of Canterbury, the king's half-brothers, the Beaufort princes, the Earl of Worcester, Lord Chamberlain of England, and other officers of state. Rixey had previously produced a letter from the Duchess Joanna, empowering him to contract matrimony with the King of England in her name, on which the trusty squire, having received King Henry's plight, pronounced that of Joanna in these words, I, Antoine Rixey, in the person of my worshipful lady, Dame Joanna, the daughter of Charles, lately King of Navarre, Duchess of Bretagne, and Countess of Richmond, take you, Henry of Lancaster, King of England, and Lord of Ireland, to my husband, and thereto I, Antoine, in the spirit of my said lady, plight you my troth. No sooner was this ceremony concluded than the rigid canonist represented to Joanna that she would commit a deadly sin by completing her marriage with a prince attached to the communion of Pope Boniface. The case, however, not being without precedent, the court of Avignon thought it better to quiet the conscience of the Duchess, thinking it possible that great advantages might be derived from her forming an alliance with the King of England, whose religious principles had hitherto been anything but stable. She obtained, July 23rd, permission of her Pope to live with the schismatic Catholics, and even outwardly to conform to them by receiving the sacraments from their hands, provided that she remained firmly attached to the party of Benoit Thirteenth. Meantime, the court of France beheld with alarm the proceedings of the Duchess, apprehending, and with reason, that it was her intention to carry her children with her to England, and to attach them to the interests of their royal stepfather. The Duke of Burgundy, who, at that time, had the principal direction of the government of France, found that to counteract King Henry's policy, it would be necessary for him to go in person to Bretagne. He proceeded to Nantes on the 1st of October. The Duchess, having heard of his arrival, invited him to dinner, and regaled him sumptuously. The Duke, on his part, having prepared a treat of a more important kind for the Duchess, presented her, at the conclusion of the repast, with a rich crown and a scepter of crystal, and another of gold, ornamented with pearls and precious stones. 
he gave the young duke a buckle of gold, adorned with rubies and pearls, a beautiful diamond, and a number of silver vessels. To each of his little brothers, Arthur, Earl of Richmond, and Count Jules of Bretagne, he presented a collar of gold, enriched with rubies and pearls. He gave the Countess of Rohan, Joanna's aunt, a splendid diamond, and a buckle to each of her ladies and damsels who were present. The lords-in-waiting and officers of the Duchess's household were not forgotten in this magnificent distribution of largesses, in which the Duke expended an immense sum. These discreet gifts entirely gained the heart of the Duchess, of the princes, her children, of her lords and officers, but above all, of that most influential courtier, the ladies of her court and bedchamber. They were sure he would be the best person in the world to defend the rights and protect the person of their young duke, and to diffuse happiness and prosperity among his subjects, and they besought him to undertake the guardianship of the royal minors and their patrimony. The duke accepted this charge as the nearest relation of the children of his friend and kinsman, the late duke, and the uncle of the duchess, and swore upon the holy evangelist to preserve faithfully the laws, liberties, and privileges of the Bretons. The duchess, having been thoroughly persuaded how much better it would be, for the interests of her children, to leave them under the care of this powerful protector, than to alienate the affections of the people of Bretagne, by taking them to England, subscribed to the treaty. After the duchess had confided the guardianship of her children to the Duke of Burgundy, he departed from Nantes for Paris, on the 3rd of November, 1402, after a stay of two months, taking with him the young duke and his two brothers, Arthur and Jules. The duke was only in his thirteenth year, and the younger princes so small, that they could scarcely guide the horse on which they were mounted, one behind the other. They were conducted by the Duke of Burgundy to Paris, where the young Duke of Bretagne performed his homage to Charles the Sixth of France. Joanna had another son, named Richard, an infant, who was not mentioned in the Breton Chronicles, as forming one of this party. One of Joanna's last actions as Duchess of Bretagne was to secure to her aunt, Jane of Navarre, the wife of the Viscount Rohan, a pension of one thousand pounds per year, out of the rents of her dower city and county of Nantes. This deed, which is printed in the Federa, affords an interesting testimony of Joanna's affection for her deceased lord, as she expressly states that this annuity is granted, not only in consideration of the nearness of kindred and friendship that is between her and her aunt, but also for, and in remuneration of, the good pains and diligence she used to procure our marriage with our very dear and beloved Lord, whom God assoil, of which marriage it so pleased our Lord and Savior, that we should continue a noble line, to the great profit of the country of Bretagne, in our very dear and beloved son, the Duke of Bretagne, and our other children, sons and daughters. And for this, it was the will and pleasure of our said very dear and beloved Lord, if he had had a longer life, to have bestowed many gifts and benefits on our said aunt, to aid her in her sustenance and provision. This deed is executed at Vons. End of section 4. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. 
Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.